Hello and welcome to the third episode in the podcast series, Unsettled Monuments, Unsettling Heritage, a set of conversations hosted by the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our program today is made possible by the generous support of the Provost Task Force on the Humanities and Arts, known as CIVIC, and its initiative in the humanities and public life. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the director of Cornell's Institute of Archaeology. I am very pleased to introduce this conversation with Jorge Otero Pilos, Director and Professor of Historic Preservation at the Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation. The touchstone for this conversation is Otero Pilos's contributions to the 2016 volume he co-edited entitled Experimental Preservation. The discussion is led today by Professor Alex Marigold from Cornell's College of Art, Architecture and Planning. And I'll go ahead and turn the conversation now over to him. All right, so hello all, uh, and uh, welcome to our meeting, one of our last meetings, in fact, of Civic, a radical collaboration research group at Cornell, um, which was focusing in the, last, in the last two years on this idea of unsettled monuments. Uh, today, we're very happy to uh, talk to Jorge Oterapilos, Professor and Director of Historic Preservation at the Graduate School of Architecture and Planning and Preservation at Columbia. Uh, and it's been a long time coming, and finally uh, he's here, and we're very, very happy to see him. Uh, Jorge is also an artist and an architect, which I think is a very important thing in this conversation today. Uh, today's discussion will be produced as a podcast, which is part of the series uh, done by the civic by this civic group, uh, and it's also initiated and housed uh, with CIAMS, which is a Cornell Institute for Archaeology and Material Studies. Um, so my name is Alex Marigold. I am an architect and a member of the faculty at Cornell AAP, and my colleagues are historians, anthropologists, uh, archaeologists, and art historians, and they will introduce themselves as we uh, proceed with the questions. So again, welcome, Jorge, and um, I guess I will begin, uh, if I may. So the first question, uh, and I think the, the, the discussion will be covering around your wonderful volume, Experimental Preservation, which we all very, uh, I think, enjoyably read uh, and we're very excited by it. So the first question is, um, I wonder about the extent of the experimental preservation, kind of its domain, let's say. Um, in the book, the examples are sort of circling, operating around uh, this idea of the margins, the various kind of liminal moments, uh, various things that are maybe outside of the definition of the canon of what kind of traditional preservation may be looking at. Uh, so in that light, uh, how far does the experimental domain extend uh, for you? Uh, and can and should the experimental outweigh the preservation, meaning the value of reimagining re an object, a monument, a building, uh, should outweigh its age value. Uh, and to maybe kind of help along the conversation, I can offer maybe a, a provocation, if I may, right, right, right off the bat. So like, would you consider something like, let's say the construction of uh, the new St. Peter's in Rome, uh, an experiment, an act of experimental preservation vis-a-vis -vis towards of, uh, the old St. Peter's? Um, by new St. Peter's, you mean the the St. Peter's that currently stands? Yes. Okay. That one. Um, because I was, did I miss a new commission for a <laughs> brand new <laughs> St. Peter's? <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, is it an act of preservation, the, the old, the new St. Peter's with, with the old? Um, uh, I mean, let me take a 
you know, a step back, let's say, to be able to answer that question, because I think it points to a fundamental aspect so, of, of, you know, of what experimental preservation tries to engage with, which is, you know, where does the monument end or where does heritage end? Um, and one could think of that question in terms of when does heritage end or when does the monument end, right? And so uh, with, with, uh, with Saint, the St. Peter's example that you put on the table, uh, it's a it's a question about continuity. You know what, what there is certainly continuity in terms of the place, the location, the practices. The object has changed. It's it's different. The building is different, but certainly that let's say the cultural practices that take place there are there is some continuity there. Now, once you change the building, the cultural practices change a bit as well. But I, I would say that um, you know there is in that sense when the heritage ends that in the case of St. Peter's, the, the, the replacement of one building for another is not, let's say, the moment when that ends. It's a moment of, of continuity rather than rupture, let's say, in, 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 that, in, in that process. It links, it, it's a great example because in a way it allows us to think about the fact that heritage is is a set of relationships is not necessarily just an object or people uh, or human practices, but it's but it is let's say the relationship between the two. And what interested um, us in experimental preservation, and I want to note the fact that this was very much a group endeavor, you know, with Tordis Arrhenius and Eric Langdalen and all the other participants in experimental preservation was the question of where does where does the monument end and in asking that question we began to think of monuments as as um really not bound let's say by the traditional um notions of object you know what 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 is it like a physical you know object in for lack of a better word, Euclidean space, that it could be something that could be um, uh, either spread across space. It didn't have to be all in one place. And some people pushed in that direction. Um, it could be in multiple fragments uh, and yet still hold together. Um, and it also could be in that, for example, let's say in, in terms of multiple fragments that links to my work on dust, right? Because for me, pollution is a kind of monument that we've created, an unintentional monument that we've created, but it is literally blown up in the air and it, and it exists in the atmosphere all around the globe, but it is um, an object. It is a... Um, a form of heritage, um, certainly that is going to outlast all the other monuments we're talking about, because that stuff is going to be up in the air for thousands of years, as we know. So um, this question of, of, the, of figuring out where the monument ends actually ended up bringing us back to the roots of preservation, because preservation at, at its core is a question about what is an object? Is this, obje is this an object worth preserving? 
And it is a very creative act. And we wanted to put the emphasis on that. Just to give you an example, a historic district. A historic district is not, it does not exist until a preservationist creates it, right? A, a preservation has to come and say, okay, let's think about the, this collection of buildings and let's really conceptualize this. And this is now a new object and let's put legislation in place that is gonna make everyone recognize this as an object. And if you cross this line, you're in, in the object. And if you move outside the line, you're not in the object. But that is such an abstract conceptual act that for us, it seemed so important to emphasize the the creative conceptual dimension of this and let me take it a step further a view shed a view shed right we designate view sheds as historic monuments and view sheds don't exist i mean physically you really can't touch them you have to experience them you have to get yourself in the location to experience them then you are in them you basically create the monument but by actually performing the visual act of looking. And so that to us was this incredible banal way in which this radical conceptual practice had gotten inscribed. How did they do it? How did they actually, you know, and you know, this is amazing. You know, at some point somebody was able, and it was a group of people to bring this into the law and to say, everyone, now we're going to this view is going to be designated as a historic artifact. So that's why when I came back to Cornell recently to, to do this artwork and I did you know this artwork called Far Above, my artwork is essentially to, a view from the Johnson Museum down to Cayuga Lake. That's my artwork, I, which I you know, created for Columbia, uh, for Cornell. Um, and, uh, and, and you go up to the location up on that roof and, and, this, and look out the window and that's the monument, right? It's that view. It of course is related to Robert Smithson's own travels that, down and his attempt to, in a sense, dislocate view of, uh, in art. Um, and so I was trying to recapture that view of the sky and looking at what do you have at the end of that view is the power plant, the coal power plant of Cayuga Lake, which is making all of the dust and all the smoke that makes the view shed actually visible when the, the sun hits it. So it's a conceptual work, but it's a very, let's say, conventional work of historic preservation um, in terms of its method. Um, but I didn't, you know, I proposed it and I, I, I said to the museum, let's now take it to the next level, which is to actually make this a designated art, you know, view shed with the, you know, city of Ithaca. Um, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm still hopeful that at some point we will designate that at view shed. Uh, well, I mean, th this continuity to, uh, I think is really uh, an interesting way to approach uh, preservation because it, it places the kind of finger right on the problem of, of, of human experience, which is that I, I think human experience is radically discontinuous, but we develop all sorts of mechanisms to 
hold ourselves together somehow. Um, we, you know, are not the same people that we were yesterday, or certainly we're not are not the same people that we were ten years ago. Um, we are constantly thinking different things. Our memories are not aligned. You know, this to me, this is why I'm very interested in smells. We can talk about that as well. But a smell is a kind of radical discontinuity in experience. Because, and in fact, our brain is wired to, 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 for danger, right? Smell is like warning, warning, you know, something different is happening, radical discontinuity in experience, smell it. And then if you smell it too long, you actually become completely accustomed to it and you don't smell it anymore. You become saturated, right? The minute that it becomes a continuous given, it, you stop experiencing it. But we also, when we smell, we are transported in time to a different moment. Uh, you know, and that to me is very interesting, the way in which we, we can be in the present and in the future and in the past kind of simultaneously. And we try desperately to bring all these radical discontinuities that are, that is human life and to hold it together with something. And, and the best thing we've come up with is meaning you know, meaning making, storytelling, you know, narrative and so on. And there's different words for meaning, but one of them is significance. You know, that's one that's used, it sounds a little bit more scientific. So in preservation, we use significance, but it's essentially the same thing. It's how to, what is the meaning of this, you know? Um, and so there is a kind of artificiality to that, that, that we have to contend with and I'm very interested in the role that the objects that we choose help us with these radical discontinuities because they, we try to compensate for them. Because if you have radical discontinuity all the time, then you have a, a kind of chaotic existence, right? It's very difficult to, it's very anxious, you know, because, because you can't predict anything. You can't predict, you know, we have to, at some level, predict a little bit the future. We have to be able to, to figure out what comes next. Otherwise, we can't plan and we can't operate as a society. So we need some level of, me, some techniques, some basic techniques for putting the pieces of discontinuity together. And monuments are a big part of that. Monuments and heritage are one way in which we, as a society, come together and say, wait a minute, you know, there's all this stuff going on, cities being torn down, up and down, everything's changing, but like, let's agree that this thing, we are going to have it in the future. So it's a kind of first act of, 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 of making up artificially constructing some sense of continuity out of radical discontinuity and those are landmarks you know that literally we put them out but i would maybe call them future mark rather than mar landmarks because what you're really marking is a is a future moment rather than a place and we should talk about that because it's really the location of of monuments is not really a location in space it's a location in time we are locating something into the future and saying, okay, we all agree that this thing is going to be there tomorrow, okay? And we're all going to put all of, our, all of our emphasis and all our work into making that stay there. And so that, provide us, 
these become objects of transition into the future. They're kind of first planning exercises, I think, for, for us. So um, that's where I would say that a, a, a monument is, let's say, a way of coping with radical discontinuity. In, in it, the, the, the nature of, of human existence. Now, there's different kinds of ways of doing this. Monuments are not the only one. I think hum, as humans, we've figured out many, many ways to deal with, with the, um, um, the human condition, you know, the kind of complexity of human existence and, and the radical discontinuity of human existence. But it's the one I'm interested in. You know, I'm interested in that one. I'll, I'll go ahead and ask the next question. So I'm Jerba Ghosh, and I'm faculty in the history department. Um, I work on the British Empire uh, broadly, and in particular in India. And the project I'm working on is about colonial monuments, um, and in particular the process of installing them in the first instance during the colonial occupation of India but then moving them in the post-colonial period. And so I'm really interested in this term that you just used as the future marking, the monument as a kind of, not a installation maybe of a past or even a present, but a way of um, marking some imagined future. So one of the things that I was really taken by in your introduction to experimental preservation is this phrase that you have on page 25 um, and it's, it's the historian's mistrust. And I'm a historian, so I'll confess to a lot of mistrust of other fields. But the, the sentence is, the historian mistrusts the preservationist's handling of historical evidence. And this suspicion is couched in a sense that the historian is the ultimate authority on the object's historical and cultural value. And that only the historian can legitimately derive historical and cultural knowledge from the object, which I think is very astute on your part, right? I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about, um, in part because you are, for lack of a better word, a maker as well as a critic, right? How do we um, decolonize the basis of historical knowledge and the way that it's tied to these preservationist projects, right? Because a preservationist project has an inherently kind of conservative logic to it, which is that we want to preserve or restore, right? And I think what you're proposing is something that's actually not about preservation, but is about, as you call it, future marking, right? Um, can I press you a little bit on that, right? And in part, I, I, it, again, I speak as a historian, right? This is mind blowing for a historian, right? to say, wait a minute, <laughs> you're not gonna preserve this thing the way that it was, right? Um, but yet I think in a way what you're doing is valuing the, the meaning or the historical or cultural meaning of these objects for the future, right? So I see a tension, maybe you don't. I don't know if you wanna comment on that. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the, your first question because I, I wanna hear more from you about what you mean by decolonize, because I think that's really important. That's where you began, like. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think of, and it may be that I studied Britain and the British Empire, right? That the 19th century is full filled 
with the professionalization of different forms of knowledge, whether it's science or history or archaeology or art history or classics, right? So it, it's in this moment that there's the emergence of these societies that become professional accreditation societies, right? The Royal Board of Architects, right, is, is among these groups. So in some sense, and that of course is very closely connected to Britain being modern and also Britain being colonial, right? So when I say decolonize, I think, okay, what happens if you go back to that moment and use some of the strategies that you're calling for for now in the 21st century and say, okay, in the 19th century, we didn't need to be preserving in the ways that Ruskin and William Morris imagined, right? Um, the one thing I'm thinking of is in historical terms, in the 19th century, there's still an ambition that we could preserve everything, right? Things are in decay, but we could preserve everything. We don't have that understanding anymore, I don't think, right? We all know we couldn't preserve everything, that actually just by the volume of material we're being selective, right? So if I was gonna, I was gonna frame decolonize, I would say for myself, Okay, well, what if we didn't have, I mean, you cited Ruskin too, right? That's who we read to start with. So it feels like in all of our readings, we've trawled through a kind of genealogy. Well, what would it look like if we didn't have that genealogy, right? That that would be the way that I phrase it. Um, I, so I, I, um, I wanna, this is very helpful. Thank you. I'm trying to think of this moment that you're referring to in the 19th century where it seemed possible to preserve everything uh certainly they spoke about it that way right like and there was this kind of universalist project that eventually everything gets gets taken care of now i think there's good and bad in that i mean the good thing is that it is in a way the seed of what i think is now a, a, an emerging uh, consciousness across the world and disciplines that we need to take care of the world in order to, uh, you know, have a future as a, as a species and that we are dependent on this world and the world is dependent on us. And so that I think there is a seed of that, and that's what I think is the progressive element. I know Ruskin is considered a conservative and he's like, you know, very much so in many ways, but because he was coming out of a very religious background and very religious world, and he didn't was not a scientist in that sense, even though he fiddled with science. He's, he, he saw the world as a, a godly creation. And, uh, but that gave him some, you know, some moments of real kind of progressive thought. I mean, he did write unto this last, which is this kind of Christian version of giving unto the last person in line the same as you give to the first person in line. And so this radical socialist view of the world, which, by the way, was very inspirational for Gandhi and Gandhi translated unto this last uh, you know, into Hindi. And I think there is in his, in Gandhi's notion of Swaraj, you know, the kind of self-rule, you know, is there is a, there is a kind of Ruskinian progressive element in that. So I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater with, with, with Ruskin. And so I think if we were to eliminate Ruskin from 
our history and say, well, we now we, what would history look like if we didn't have Ruskin? Well, we wouldn't have Gandhi either, you know? So I, I think we have to kind of, um, now when we look back, we have to think about, um, we, we, we have a critical view on the past. And that's, I think, very, very important to be able to say, you know, these, these figures were not, were not perfect, but they did, we can take, you know, and leave. That's our choice. And I think that's also the historian's choice. You know, the, the, the historian can take and leave. But it comes to back to this question of, can we save everything? Can a historian write all history. I think those historians of the 19th century did think they could write these universal histories. And now we know we can't. But at the same, in the same level, now we're confronted with this existential problem that we need to basically, you know, quote unquote, save the world, right, uh, in order to save ourselves. And we are also now very conscious of the fact that we actually can't do that. We don't have that capacity. We don't have the uh, the knowledge of how to do it and we don't have the energy for how to do it so we have to make some some tough choices and um those are for me the choices that come back down to to preservation and and so i see preservation as part of this emerging kind of consciousness that that i would maybe link to a, a, an ethics of care um, around the, you know, around the world, and it cuts across disciplines, and it. I think this is where there has been a really interesting kind of work of decolonizing, uh, you know, to use your word, um, the thinking of the various disciplines in light of this ethics of care, around the move away from an ethics of exploitation to an ethics of care and and that ethics of exploitation that that sees the world as the, the future as one dependent on exploiting the world right you because you use it in order to build a new world we have to use this world use it up extinguish it in order to build a new world that is which is a modernist 19th century and 20th century fantasy we know is a dead end and so we are now, I can think theoretically moving to, to this new paradigm, which is, a, in my view, a preservation paradigm to think about care as the basis for our relationship to the world. And that means that we need to let go, not only let go of things that we, and one of the things we need to stop taking care of is this ethic of exploitation but it's very hard because all our lives are so bound up in it. I mean, we, we think of the world and we think of each other as things to be exploited, unfortunately. And, and so uh, I think theoretically we're far more advanced, let's say, than we are in practice. We're still uh, in practice exploiting the world and each other. But I think theoretically, you know, people like yourself and, and others are beginning to move intellectually to a new paradigm that hopefully will will make its way to practice i don't know when uh but but it you know at some point um and and in that practice i think we can recover some aspects of our of our um of, of certain practices right and i think preservation can offer a kind of first testing ground 
for the application of some of these ideas because it isn't it is practically the an act of care you know so it it is also a way to begin to confront these ideas with the reality and their limits right to how much can we do intellectually practically Thanks. This is really uh, fascinating, and I'd like to continue this particular line of uh, discussion. My name is Ben Anderson. Um, I'm an associate professor here in history of art and classics, um, and among other things, I work on uh, the history of uh, history of antiquarianism, uh, 18th and 19th century uh, antiquarianism. Um, so these are topics that are close to my heart. And you've also worked, Jorge, on a, um, one particular monument that's very close to my heart, which is Trajan's Column. Um, you, know, you did a project at the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, where you were engaging with, you made the cast of an interior of a cast of uh, the column of Trajan, of the exterior of the column of Trajan. So the column of Trajan is a really interesting example, I think, for thinking through this um, the distinction that you're advancing, and not only you, many people have advanced between sort of an ethics of exploitation and an ethics of care. In the column of Trajan, among many other things, depicts colonization, colonial exploitation, right? It's an image of Trajan's troops conquering Dacia, um, subduing uh, the Dacians, and actually deforesting what we would today call uh, Romania. There's endless scenes there of the uh, Roman troops chopping down trees in order to construct bridges or in order to construct forts. Um, so it's very much a monument that explicitly advances a kind of ethics of, of exploitation. Um, one, might, one might look at it that way. Certainly, it, it's been received that way by other colonial empires, right? Yeah, I mean, Napoleon with the construction of the Vendome column, which commemorates um, his own uh, sort of colonial uh, exploits. And the answer of the communards in the case of the Vendome column was that it should be torn down. And so they did, that that monument as a sort of offspring of Trajan's column, but as part of this kind of engine, sort of heritage engine um, of exploitation should be cut off at the root and sort of done away with, right? So is there a sense in which, you know, granting that heritage is a constellation, a set of relations, that it reproduces itself in various ways, are some, elements of heritage, some of these heritage engines actually malign. Does there come a point when we say they don't deserve an ethics of care? Um, they're actually actively malign and need to be uh, sort of cut off at the root, perhaps precisely because they are advancing an ethics of exploitation and antithetical ethics to the one that this particular vision of preservation um, would advance as the greatest hope for the future thought and I um, I mean I think my short answer would be yes there there are things called heritage which are uh, exploitative and and the very thing that we consider to be you know uh, kind of acts of uh, domination you know spatial domination interpersonal domination uh, and subjugation and, and a lot of monuments, have the explicit purpose to do that. You know, they are they are claims about authority and power and who's on top, literally of the pedestal and who's not. Um, and so you can either, uh, you know, associate yourself with that with that person in power, right? Uh, but or you can be feel yourself excluded. And so it it is, let's say, uh, very much 
there is a dimension of heritage and perhaps the most common way of thinking of heritage is in that sense, you know. And I would say that primarily because it takes a lot of resources to maintain heritage. So it is, let's say, the ultimate luxury. And so after you have the boat and you have the fancy car and you have the, you know, the fancy house and you colonize that little plot of land and you colonize a region and you call, right, what's next, right? You call you know, you colonize the mind. And so those, um, those are ways of, you know, really creating that, 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 that forceful spatial condition of, of having to be uh, decent, you, you decenter people because those monuments are at the center. They tend to be in the center of plazas um, and centers of space. Now, but let's take this question further because I think it's really, really important. So what would it mean to have a heritage that is not um, of, that, of that ilk? I mean, obviously it, it means a different kind of politics it means that they have to be sustained and maintained and literally paid for <laughs> through a different kind of, of politics. They can also be a different kind of object and should be a different kind of object. In other words, what the, what an ethics of care, if we were to follow it, you know, along the lines that you presented would require different kinds of objects to take care of. In other words, they would have to be objects that are, that are not in the center, that are not trying to, you know, uh, let's say quite literally put us down, but there are objects that would have to um, ennoble us all um, and, and provide us for a way to share a sense of who we are together uh, rather than who we are uh, as a kind of tiered system, right? Of who's on top and who's at the bottom. So um, again, maybe to, you know, now that we're, we've, we've, we've broached on, uh, on, um, on, uh, on Gandhi, you know, the, but how, how do we have a kind of true self-rule? Like self in the, in, the, in the sense of self, but communally as a, as a self-rule. What are the kinds of objects that would, that would be helpful in that, in that process? And so that's where I think the real creativeness needs to happen and the real kind of thinking needs to happen um, because those, those kinds of, that kind of heritage is a new kind of heritage. And so I don't, I don't think that the way to go about this is to fall back on the sense that what we need to do is to then completely shift to the idea that that heritage is traditional cultural practices, you know, and to say, well, you know, that is the that is the future of heritage is uh, essentially a folklorist kind of uh, shift, right? And to say, you know, now what, what was con what was previously considered folklore or traditional practice is is now uh, shifted to the center. Um, and, but I, so I, I think that we need to, in other words, think about our relationship to the things that sustain us 
and we are going to have to make choices about them. But those kinds of objects might be different kinds of objects, and they might not. And I think some of them are up for grabs. I think some of them are up for grabs, but they are beyond our common reach. And I'm going to say something that is going to sound completely crazy. Okay. But one of those common objects is outer space. Outer space is right now the frontier of colonization. While we sit around and talk about decolonizing, outer space is being colonized in exactly the same way that America was colonized in the 17th century through corporations that are being you know, uh, chartered by governments because the governments can't produce the capital to do it. And they're kind of like hedging their beds. And so that we're chartering corporations to essentially colonize outer space. And we have no map of outer space, just like we didn't have a map of the United States. We had no clue what's out there or who's out there or what it means, but we're going for it, right? So we are militarizing. That's what we're doing, right? And so everybody, we're all happy because there's no people out there. So we don't care right now, right? Because we're not subjugating people. But in the process, we are subjugating each other. And so we do need to think about outer space as heritage, I think. Closer to home, I would say the seas and the air we breathe are also these kinds of common heritage that we really need to be actively fighting to think about as what is at stake, because we know that the North Pole is the geopolitical frontier of the next century. This is where, this is where the struggle is going to be because it's melting. And now all of a sudden we have, you know, Russia and Canada and Europe and the United States all facing off for what? For exploitation of the seabed, mining. So, you know, it's like the same playbook all over again. And, and we, we need to think deeply about, okay, so what if we were to consider now, we were all come together and say, you know, the North Pole is heritage. We need to care about it. And we need to put that on the table right now among all governments that this is the, this is the thing we need to care about. We, we, we can't just hand it over. Well, we would run into some, a lot of opposition, you know, a lot of opposition. You know, you think Bears Ears was difficult. This would be even harder, right? Because the, 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 the kind of salivating around the, the potential profits of this undersea mining is, 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 you know, it's like a river. So, but this is where I think the creativity and the energy needs to go right into thinking about now, how do we think about that? How do we think about the oceans uh, as, as heritage? Some people are thinking about it, but it's so anthropocentric, you know, um, that, that, that we are, we really only care about, us in the oceans and we we have to like if we need to decolonize we need to decenter the humanness of this all because we are there there is let's say no no life without this world you know that like human life 
doesn't exist alone. It can exist alone. It, we, we exist in a world. So if we just mine this world or destroy this world, then we're ultimately destroying ourselves. It's kind of basic to think about it, but it's, it's, it's what it is. So that's where I think the energy is. And I think what heritage can do is to actually help to bring people along into this process of, of considering this heritage because it gives a stake to everyone at the table. Everyone becomes a stakeholder the minute that this is your heritage because heritage is about shared objects. What are the objects that we say, you know, we want to share together? So, and their future markings. So how do we future mark the poles? How do we future mark outer space? Um, we don't have, um, it's, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit, you know, we don't have, I mean, we barely have the intellectual capacity to do it. And we certainly don't have the, um, uh, when we had to preserve artworks, we created institutions called museums. When we had to preserve you know, uh, historic districts. We were talking about historic districts. We created municipal governments and municipal art societies to, to preserve those. You know, when we had to, we, we came up with the idea of parks, that was a big leap. We created the National Park Service, you know, 50 years after the idea came along, we created the institution to take care of it. In the meantime, we were basically throwing the government military at protecting those parks from poachers. So what if we work with the military? We, what if we work with the military to say, okay, let's think of this as heritage. Maybe the military, the, the different, the different uh, military powers need to be sitting around the table thinking about how do they abide by international law to think about heritage. And there is written into military codes, the notion of protecting others' heritage. So it's not so far-fetched. You know, the Lieber Code of, of the Union Armies, uh, 1863 in America, was, was a code for protecting the enemy's heritage because it happened that the enemy was other Americans. So we said, okay, that's great. You know, we protect, you know, we don't want to destroy other people's, you know, there are people in the end, so we don't want to destroy it. But that carried over to the Hague Convention and other con international law. And, and so... Um, and, 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 you know, you that study antiquarianism, I mean, Amérique de Vatel, you know, the, 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 the 18th century uh, jurist, uh, Swiss jurist who wrote the Law of Nations was the, really the first to really conceptualize this idea that you have to take care of the enemy's heritage. If, you, if a just war is fought when you are protecting the people against a tyrant. And so th this is where I think we, we, the real stakes are. Now, because it is so difficult, and I think we are so unprepared as a civilization, and we don't have the resources to do it, this is where I think we need to, let's say, leap over our, our uh, deficiencies with some intellectual and artistic creativity. This, I think, is the role of this leaping over our incapacity is the role of art. Art does what we cannot do. Art, art does the impossible, right? So this is where we have to be bold in how we create artistically. 
uh, and that means intellectually too. I mean, there's you know I, I, creativity in general. So that that boldness is is I think really sorely needed. I don't I don't know what it'll look like, but I but I certainly uh, uh, call upon you know the the daring <laughs> daring explorations of these uh, of these um, uh, of this common heritage that that um, that could in a way move us beyond back to your question uh, in op- oppressiveness because we run otherwise we run the risk of just doing the same all over again, which is, as we know, a dead end. And therefore, we will fall prey to the hubris of people who are telling us that really the future is to leave this planet, you know, which is to me total insanity. But that's that's where we are now. That's where our state of discourse is, is, you know, Let's let's build the ships because we got to get out of here. Jorge, thank you for that very complete um, set of responses. So I just want to affirm, or maybe not affirm, your view about colonizing outer space. Um, one of the uh, exercises I've done with a class was going to visit the map collection in our library, and uh, there are these maps called Colonizing Mars. And so if you type in. Um, and they're produced by NASA and National Geographic. So it's already a kind of uh, spatial reality, right? So I, I actually am sad to say it's not as crazy as you say. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering if folks have any follow-up questions or any um, closing questions. I was going to say it's a really it's a really fascinating discussion. I mean, we started talking about you know some something sort of uh, some objects in the past, and now we're kind of in this sort of brave new, well, actually not so new uh, frontier, devoid of objects potentially. Although outer space apparently is full of junk uh, that we don't know what to do with, right? Uh, so maybe there's a fascinating uh, connection to me between uh, kind of preservation and art uh, as a kind of sort of one function of the other, the art as a way of producing this kind of object that, or whatever it is that we can somehow get around with. Because it's like one thing, everyone can imagine what a park is, I think, one way or the other, right? Uh, but it's it's a much bigger leap to consider even the North Pole, right? It's this kind of place where the Santa Claus lives. But that's a, as a kind of um, challenge to preservation art, architecture, all these sort of disciplines which are normally, uh, let's say, bound to the past, like by a kind of chain and ball of what sort of built environment. I mean, it's really kind of a fascinating uh, image to, to be left with. So really, thank you for that. Well, th- thank you for, for the, you know, the prompt and for, you know, sharing your work as well. I mean, to me, um, this, this challenge of imagining let's say future um future marks future heritage future landmarks if you will is um is a collective challenge you know it 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 requires a um you know the kind of gathering of minds that you've put together you know to really try to um come up with with uh, directions and methods you know of how do you go about you know putting little steps along the way in in this direction and and seeing the connections 
um, in a way, the different response to it is that from, let's say, traditional art making or traditional architecture making or traditional history writing or, or you know, is that is that the um, the 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 work the object is already there you know it, it's a problem but but only in its kind of uh, incipient form because it hasn't really fully shaped yet it, it won't like the what what we think the north pole is is not what the north pole is going to be and so what um what preserving it does is, is you know, or thinking of it as heritage does is to begin to, um, to shape it, uh, to give that object form. And um, that form is really uh, not really a new form, it's already given. So we are, we are really shaping the sense of where it ends like the stake is where it ends where does the north pole end you know where does it go up does it go sideways you know if you begin to try to to really imagine it and the problem with where the asking the question of where it ends is that it really um binds us to a notion of continuity in time and space you know it, it binds us to a notion of 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 um you know, um, of a kind of, um, uh, you know, traditional object, right? But there are objects that are not all in one place and all at the same time. You mentioned space junk, you know. Um, so uh, space junk is an aggregate of different objects flying around. So how we think of that as, as heritage and care for it and people that fly rockets really care about it because if they hit one of those things, they are toast. So they have to really map it and constantly track it. So, but that that sense of an object being distributed to me is really interesting. And so, uh, uh, if I may, um, you know, this in a sense goes back to the roots of preservation, and it does, and it does tread into. I'm going to tread into some dangerous territory over here. Um, but I'm going to skirt around it a little bit because um, one of the first ways in which an object ceased to be tied to a place was through colonization and war and looting and, and taking pieces of somebody else's culture somewhere else. So now we know that was bad. Um, so we don't want to repeat that, right? That's not what we want to do. But think of a different scenario where, in fact, instead of somebody going somewhere and, and taking stuff, people from everywhere are asking for stuff, right? That's a different scenario, right? It's a kind of demand side distribution rather than supply side, you know, or, or... so think of the Berlin Wall, right? Instead of, let's say, the the Benin Mar uh, the Benin bronzes or the or instead of the the Parthenon marbles let's think of the Berlin Wall the Berlin Wall was requested by every municipality around the world wanted a piece of the wall 
and you see pieces of the wall everywhere, right? And the Germans were giving it away. Take some, you know, one more piece to Chile, another piece to the United Nations, have, right? Everyone has a piece of the wall. What an amazing thing, right? There was this kind of moment where everybody wanted to, and, and the Germans were like, what if the Germans now say, wait, 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 now we want the whole thing back, right? We want every piece of the wall back. And we want to rebuild the wall because it's really important to who we are as Germans, right? That would be insane. It would like, people would be like, are you kidding me? Really? Are you recalling the wall? Um, because the way it left was so uh, fantastic and, you know, was this sense of sharing that I think is maybe one way in which we could recover the sense that an object doesn't have to be in one place that when we share it, we can, we can give it up, right? Giving up heritage, I think is just as important as taking it, you know? So, because that's what sharing is, right? When you share something, you actually give it up. Um, and so focusing on heritage is an act of giving up as opposed to taking up, um, I think would be a very fruitful direction for us. And maybe one of the examples is the, the, the Berlin Wall. And so what would it mean for the United States to give up the North Pole and for Russia to give up the North Pole and for Norway to give up the North Pole and Canada to give up the North Pole and Denmark to give up the North Pole so that we can all have the North Pole, right? And, and, and so maybe what we need to do is to just give a little piece of the North Pole to everybody on Earth, right? Like a little, a little glass of melted North Pole to every child in the world that is born, you know, that requests a piece of the, right? Like, take it, it's yours, right? That would be amazing. So, um, in other words, like this is, you know, I think like the kind of um, ethics of care would require us to think about a different kind of methods for um, for the distribution of heritage, but I do think, you know, I, I mean, I, I I've been trying to do this with 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 the ethics of dust. You know, they I've turned them into a series of what I call distributed monuments. So for me, this notion of a distributed monument is really important. That you can. So I'm trying to through distributed monuments, right, uh, and I'm trying to give a little piece of the atmosphere to everybody that wants one. Take it. Take a little piece of the atmosphere. What is it, you know, how does that kind of, you, you have it, it's all around you, but now you have it kind of in a concentrated form. Um, and so that is a tangible physical piece. It's not the object in its entirety, but it, it is a kind of invitation to think about the stake we all have in the in the in the atmosphere. So you know, one possibility. And that's a yeah, that's a, I, I like the idea of it's uh, kind of giving things away, sort of on multiple levels. But I think it's a really kind of wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. So I mean, it's a really great kind of uh, moment to maybe like kind of end this conversation. So I know people have to go. And uh, but but again, thank you very much because, like I said, uh, it's a really kind of wonderful leap 
from what we started and what we ended up in the conversation, uh, from the past to the future, from the kind of uh, sort of colonization to you know sharing is caring, like something that I'm telling my five year old, uh, which is you know really kind of fantastic. So again, thank you Jorge for for coming, uh, and uh, it's been really wonderful to talk to you. And uh, we'll we will obviously share the podcast when it's uh, kind of edited and ready, and uh, hopefully we'll. See you again in some way, in one way or the other. And again, thank you very much for everything that you do and for, for what you came to tell us about today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure.